Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there. It's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1925, and it's time to pop off that shoe, throw it in some boiling water, and get ready to chow down, because we're talking about the gold rush. Hey, everybody. Welcome to... Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where each week we look at one film on the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list to see if they are still as good as people say, how they've influenced the films we watch now, and if they simply hold up. Um, today we are talking about the Charlie Chaplin film, The Gold Rush. It's the second Chaplin that we have done on the podcast. And I'm so excited to talk to you about that, Amy. But before we get into that, let's review what people were saying last week about Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, Sean Redlitz at The Redlitz made a really good point. He's like, you guys talked about Dr. Strangelove and you didn't bring up Duck Soup even once. Oh, yeah. Another film that is satirizing war. In another film that he says would have been even more in conversation if Kubrick had given us that pie fight ending. Yes. I love that connection. I think that's incredibly smart. Thank you, Sean. And uh, Ian Stewart wrote, Amy mentions how hard it must have been not to laugh at Peter Sellers. And there's one moment where the Russian diplomat is clearly holding back laughter. I mean, there's so many clips online, Amy, that I watched during research for this where people are just breaking up on set. I mean, they're extended runs of the phone call and things like that. Like they just, they really let him fly. Um, that's fun that you can actually still see it in the movie. It's true. And I put out a dare. Can you out there find the typos that are in that really neat mm -hmm. handwritten opening sequence? And lots of people did. I have to give special shout outs to at Jepsty, J-E-P-S-T-E-Y, and also Ken Langford at Joe King TX for noticing both that he misspelled fictitious and also said based on the novel by instead of based on the novel by. All your based on the novel by are belong to us. <laughs> and Edward Casey wanted to bring up a point that he disagrees with us about the genesis of Dr. Strangelove's mechanical hand. Uh, he said that we made it sound like it was an onset improv by Sellers based on the glove that Kubrick used to switch out the lights. 
He says that could be, but it always seemed to me at least that it's a direct reference to the mad scientist character of Rotwang in Metropolis, as well as the other notorious 60s doctor, Dr. No, both who had mechanical appendages. Well, I'm just going off of what Peter Sellers said his inspiration was. So if you have uh, a better line on it, it wasn't uh, just simply my point of view. It was uh, what Peter Sellers said. There's so, a lot of Peter Sellers. Maybe one said that and another one said something else. I buy that. Um Amy, you know, we've talked about our monthly show at the Alamo Draft House, and we were doing one on January 20th. We're focusing on presents because the show is on Inauguration Day, and we'll be talking about the film Idiocracy, but we'd love to see you there at the Alamo Draft House. There are a few seats left, and there's one really cool thing that you can do at the Alamo Draft House. They hold handicapped seating, but if all the other seats are sold out, you can take the handicapped seating. So if you go on there and you just see handicapped seating available, uh, you are allowed to take it uh, if they are not already taken. And... Big week for the Academy Awards, but I think we should maybe hold back some of our thoughts on that and maybe focus on one kind of Academy Award episode. What do you think, Amy? Yeah, I definitely want to get into those Academy Awards when it is time. I got a lot of thoughts. But you know what? If I get into those, we will never get to talk about the Gold Rush. And I have a lot to say about the Gold Rush. We have a lot to say about everything. I love it. And last week we asked you if you thought there is another satire that should be on this list. And the calls are pretty great. Uh, Let's play a couple of satires that you think that should belong on this list that are akin to Dr. Strangelove. I think the satires that uh, most capture the spirit of Dr. Strangelove have got to be the one-two punch of office space and idiocracy. And I'm going to pick Boots Riley. Sorry to bother you. One of my favorite satires about America, specifically about how class, beauty, ambition, small towns, and Christian morality all get kind of conflated with patriotism is Drop Dead Gorgeous from 1999. Movie about American politics I wanted to suggest is Election. It, you know, it's about politics in microcosm, but it's given us some real metaphors for the way we talk about politics. It's, and it really is wrestling with the idea of female leadership. The satire to put on the list is Robocop. You don't put it on as an action movie, although it's an excellent action movie. The reason Robocop is one of the greatest movies of all time is that it really says something about the culture and the society of when it was made. I'd like to nominate South Park. Bigger, longer, and uncut. Uh, it hits on multiple levels. It's a comedy, satire, a musical. It's animated. And the holding power is excellent. Those are fantastic. And actually, in that list, I start thinking, is my favorite genre the satire? Yeah. Because all of those movies are terrific. Well, it's funny that someone brought up Idiocracy, which is the movie, like we mentioned earlier, that we are doing at the Alamo Draft House next week. So we'll get a chance to revisit some satire there. But I really liked um, the South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And that made me think about uh, Team America World Police. And that, I think, is a really brilliant satire as well. It is. You know, the first time I saw Team America World Police was at a hostel in Transylvania. Oh, wow. And everybody in that Transylvanian hostel was just gathered around the VCR having the best time. It it, would a satire about our country works for other people who also want to make fun of our country. Excellent. Well, I think that, you know, honestly, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone maybe should be represented on this list because even what they did with Book of Mormon, they're able to really get to the core of issues. I mean, every week on... Uh, South Park, they are so topical and so uh, smart about how they attack what's going on that I I think we could uh, maybe make an argument for one of those movies to be on this list. But that's a conversation for another day, because right now we are talking about Charlie Chaplin, the little tramp in the great big gold rush. Let's unspool it. 
The year is 1925, and nobody knows the trouble I've seen. F. Scott Fitzgerald publishes his third novel, The Great Gatsby. It's a flop and only sells 20,000 copies. The autobiographical Nazi manifesto Mein Kampf is also published. It also sells equally poorly. Nellie Taylor Ross is elected governor of Wyoming, thus becoming the first female governor in U.S. history. Fifteen days after her inauguration, Miriam Ferguson is sworn in as the governor of Texas. Tennessee schoolteacher John Scopes is arrested for teaching the theory of evolution launching the Scopes Monkey Trial. Top movies of the year are Battleship Potemkin, The Phantom of the Opera, The Pleasure Garden, and today's film, The Gold Rush. It's ranked number 58 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, having jumped 16 points from its original position at 74 in the 1997 list. Amy, let's listen to a clip. Nope, just kidding. No clip, because it's a silent movie. Uh, Who's in it? What's it about? The Gold Rush is the story of the Gold Rush of Alaska when thousands of men flooded into Alaska, filling up beer halls, wandering around in the snow, I don't know, being hunted by bears, that seems to happen in this movie, trying to get their lucky break of gold. One of those men is our beloved Charlie Chaplin playing the tramp, who's playing the lone prospector. It's sort of layers of, of, of artifice on top of that. He's playing a prospector who goes like, stumbling into the snow wearing normal Oxford shoes and carrying his tiny cane. Um, There's also Max Wayne as Big Jim McKay. He's a man who strikes it lucky, finds some gold. There's also Tom Murray as Black Larson, the villain of the piece, and an ingenue named Georgia Hale as Georgia, the girl at the dance hall that our tramp falls in love with. Amy, this is now the second chaplain we've done on the show. It is, yeah. We did City Lights before this, which you know, is a film he did after this. So we're kind of working backwards. Well, I have to say, and we've talked about this a lot, uh, I have an issue with silent films, or I thought I had an issue with silent films. And I want to admit something to you right off the bat, and I feel like this is going to really uh, sully me in the eyes of everybody who listens to this show. But I realize I need to watch silent films during the day because when I watch them at night, it literally puts me to sleep And I watched this during the day, and I had such an amazing time watching this movie. I loved this movie. And I was like, I think there's something about the music and the no voices that it almost, it lulls me to a state of just, it just puts me out. Like, it literally knocks me out. I tried watching this movie uh, the first time I got all ready on my couch. I was out within five minutes. What? I, I don't know what it is. I felt, There's a bear in the first five minutes. I know. I fell asleep right after the bear, like right when he got to the cabin. And I don't know. And I know this is, it sounds dumb, but I feel like the level of attention that you have to have for a silent film is higher than a regular film because you literally can't take your eyes off the screen. You have to be pulling in so much information. Uh, and it sounds kind of, you know, funny in the sense that like, you know, this older classic style of filmmaking, you know, the beginning art of our filmmaking actually requires a lot more active uh, attention than a regular film. And, and I know this is sounding dumb and I'm I'm trying to get out in front of it. But all I want to say is that in the proper environment, I watched this movie and my opinion of it radically changed. So now I feel like I have to go back and and uh, and rewatch City Lights because I, I also was struggling with that as well. It literally just knocks me out. I watched it yesterday afternoon, and I just absolutely loved it. I, I think this is my favorite silent film that we've done. And I don't know if I can say it's my favorite Chaplin, but it definitely, I like it more than I like City Lights. 
Well, you know who would not be surprised to hear you say that, even though he might not be happy to hear you say yes. that? Would be Charlie Chaplin in 1942. Because in 1942, the silent film has been dead for almost 15 years. And he decides he has to re-release The Gold Rush. He's like, how do I get these people, these people who don't care? I mean, in 1942, if you're a moviegoer, you think about silent films the way, like, I think about new metal. You know, right, it's just right, right. embarrassing and old. Little and poison. Look what the cat dragged Whoa, whoa, whoa. In. That's not new metal. That is what new is metal. That? And that is a different thing. Oh. That is good and that is forever good. And that Wait, not what's expire. new metal? New metal. It's like. Name a band. Slipknot? Oh, that's new metal. Okay, interesting. All right. I kind of consider <laughs> that like, you know, I kind of forget about that era. It's like the Creed is new metal too, I guess. Or are they new metal? They're really, uh, we are. We're disagreeing. Josh and All right. So Slipknot, Slipknot is the only one. All right. This. All right. Slipknot is, that makes sense to me. Okay. But yeah. So it's like, Rammstein. I, I mean, that's not new they're metal. They're cool. They're cool. Wait, right. Do you know what metal is? I do, but I'm just trying to like understand like what the difference between like Slipknot and Rammstein is. Okay, well, like, new metal is all the whiny people from, like, 98 to 2004. Wait, so then you're talking about emo music. Uh. I mean, because then, are we talking about, like, are we talking about that? I mean, because now we're opening up a whole, like, I really want, you just gave me Slipknot. Like, Slipknot doesn't help me, like, knock it down. Like, what else? I'm, I'm, I'm trying you to pull it up. I think this what? Is corn. corn. Okay, corn. Okay, Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit. Okay. okay. That's like, but you see, but I think of like Limp Biscuit and Puddle of Mud as like rap metal. Like well, that like kind of like, feud. yeah, this is like, like Limp Biscuit and like Kid Rock all kind of feel like this, like I'm rapping, but I'm also like with guitars, like I'm in a different, hey, look, it's all different stuff. Okay. So if I was like to say to you right now, yeah. hey, Paul, let's go to a Limp Biscuit concert. I'd be like, be- I'd say I'm busy. I'm going on the Kid Rock cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, yes, I hear yeah. what you're saying. You will give me the same look. As I'd be like, the guy directed The Fanatic? <laughs> <laughs> He's got a band? He was in a band before he directed a movie with John Travolta? Did you see John Travolta's Instagram post where he said, thank you, Academy, for considering me for best actor? Considering. That's the most active use of the verb consider. Yeah, it was a really, heard. it was really nice. Um, all right, so so yeah, so in 1945, he wants to bring back the silent film. Yeah, 42. He's 42. like, all these people don't understand the beauty of Limp Biscuit. I need uh-huh. to teach them the beauty of Limp Biscuit. I'm going to take my favorite, my huge hit. Like right. Gold Rush was a massive hit when it comes out in 1925. Like it's hard to even underestimate what a huge hit it was. He's like, I'm going to take that one and I'm going to make it cool for the sound people. I'm going to get rid of all of the inner titles, you know, all the little things right. between that explain things. And I'm going to narrate it myself. And I'm going to make silent films cool for this younger generation. Almost make Maybe kind of like how James Cameron tried to bring back Titanic in 3D. Well, this is interesting because I was curious about the difference between this, you know, the two versions of this film. And uh, I watched a 1925 version. So I didn't realize that he literally made it a talkie. Yeah, I mean, this is even the opening scene of the 1942 version. And you can picture the same image as you can in the silent one. This giant field. It's astounding looking. That's all white snow and what looks like a thousand tiny men. I need to talk to you about this, too. Yeah, Yeah, let's talk about it. In the great gold rush, Alaska was the hope and dream of wave-worn men. The ruthless siren of the far north. Beckoning thousands to her icy bosom, beckoning thousands to her unknown regions. The Chilkoot Pass was the great barrier to the gold fields. Over this pass, men faced untold misery and hardship. Many lost their lives, some fell exhausted wayside, others lost courage and turned back. But the brave went on. 
See, this version would have kept me awake right through the whole thing. Um, he really makes Alaska sound sexual. Uh, by the way, I knew that he re-released it, and I knew that he trimmed things and added things. So it really got me thinking about uh, Charlie Chaplin and George Lucas. That's exactly what I was thinking about, too. This is a proto-Star Wars. Yeah. I made a blockbuster. How do I keep it relevant? Right. How do I fix up the things that I, perfectionist artiste man, right. have always been bugged by? Yeah, and I think that that's an interesting idea because you even see somebody like your favorite, James Cameron, doing it again for Titanic. Like, even if it's like mixing with the sound, playing with different levels. Fixing the stars. Yes, you're totally right. I, there is this idea of, well, why not fix it? But then there's also this, like, what we love about it is that it's not fixed. And this is, you know, it's a it's a larger conversation, but... I want to know, because I didn't really do that much research on the 1942 version, how was it received? It was received pretty well. People were really happy, but there was the side effect of the thing that also reminds me of Star Wars, which is that Chaplin was like, well, we got it, 1942 is perfect, fuck 1925, and all of the copies of 1925 got lost, destroyed. You couldn't watch the 1925 version until really recently when a a group of people tried to figure out where they could collect all the old footage, put it together, figure out where the inner titles had been, and rebuild it from scratch. Well, that's amazing. And and this is why I love being a subscriber to the Criterion channel, who does not advertise in this podcast. It's just me. Though they should, man. I mean, why not? I gave two people subscriptions for Christmas. You see, it's a great thing. Come on, guys. (laughs) I love it so much. But it was great to not only be able to watch the 1925 version there, but you could also watch 1942 version. And then they also have a bunch of little documentaries about how they put it all together. Yeah, because the other thing that connects the gold rush to Star Wars is that this was a huge VFX movie. Mm. You know, he was inventing all sorts of rear projections and miniatures and things that we'd later see even in, in um, Wizard of Oz. Well, with, look, like houses whizzing up in the air. I think the biggest contribution that Charlie Chaplin definitely made to cinema in this film is the man as chicken. You know, a hungry man on island sees other man as chicken. I mean, that is something that I grew up on in Warner Brothers cartoons my entire life. I was like, that's where it came from? The original You Are a Hambone? All right, I love it. Uh, that's exactly where it came from. I actually pulled a clip of that because I was thinking of the same thing too. There's, there's a scene where Charlie Chaplin and Big Jim McKay, who's very, 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 right, right. very, very big, are locked in a cabin, starving to death. And they take that scene and they put it again in um, a Yosemite Sam cartoon where Yosemite Sam is in a cabin with evil Yosemite Sam. They're oh, like boy. identical twins, this. but one of them has a red beard and one of them has a black beard. And Daffy Duck shows up at the door. Duck? Yes, gentlemen, as I was saying, I have here just about the handiest, handiest little bookful of gastronomical surprises that ever tempted the jaded palate of a fastidious food fancier. Oh, don't bother fixing anything for me. I just finished my lunch. I love that. And did you know that Charlie Chaplin originally wasn't in that chicken costume? He literally was like, oh, no, someone else can do it. And they were doing it, and they weren't doing it right. And he's like, I got to put on the chicken costume because the guy in the chicken costume is not doing the right version of me in the chicken costume. So I love that there is, there is uh, like he was, he knew exactly what he wanted so much that the chicken needed to walk around in, in the same exact way. Too. Well, he does it perfect. When you watch that chicken walk, it's going heel toe, heel toe, proper like, very chicken proper like, like a chicken going to a dinner party. I love it. All right. Well, I think what I was really impressed with in this film, and we get into it as we talk about it, but was 
Charlie Chaplin as a director. I think a lot of the times the conversation about Charlie Chaplin is he's this brilliant performer. And what I noticed here was, wow, stylistically, across the board, this movie is jaw-droppingly impressive. I mean, the way he directs the other actors, because it's a lot of other actors in this film, and just the way, the scope. I mean, the opening sequence of this, which you just played the narration of, I was like, well, this has to be newsreel footage, right? This, this, is, this is newsreel, right? I mean, he, he didn't get all these people. And then in my research of it, he did. I mean, this is... This is insane, like what he did here, like, and how he created this gigantic scope. And I was like, this is amazing. I wanted to play a little clip from this uh, documentary where they kind of talk about how they accomplished this. So Chaplin moved his whole team back to Los Angeles. On 2nd May, 1924, everyone was back at the studio, ready to start filming again. During the two months that followed, while Chaplin was reworking the script and the gags, the set designers were ingeniously recreating Alaska in the heat of the California summer. Miles of planks and hundreds of yards of barbed wire were used for this. 200 tons of plaster and 100 barrels of flour were needed to recreate the ice and snow. The hardware bill shows that hundreds of pickaxes and spades, tons of steel and cement, 400 kilos of nails, and 3,000 bolts were used in the construction of the set. I mean, that is giant. He basically built an entire backlot town. And I think when I was watching it, I just kept on going, how did he do that? How did he do that? Because it just seems so out of reach for the time in which this is made, 1925. I, I, I really like, I watch this movie with my jaw drop for a large portion of it because it really, I mean, it's still visually impressive. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should put this into a little bit of context, too, financially, since we bring it up, because I think that is really important. So a few years before this, Charlie Chaplin had founded United Artists, you know, that mm -hmm. group that was this new way of doing movies to try to establish something that would not become the studio system. Right. You know? Because it wasn't a foregone conclusion that the studio system was going to exist the way it is, you know, the way that it does now, you know, where things like Warner Brothers still exist. Right. So Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, her husband, and Charlie Chaplin, who were the three biggest stars of their day, formed United Artists, which was almost like an artistic collective. They were going to pull out of their money and then use it to finance their own thing so that these three really creative filmmakers and stars could control their own fortunes, could control right. their own kind of movies that they wanted to make. The problem was that Mary Pickford was really dedicated to this idea. And so she was just cranking out movie after movie. She was really doing the work and making them, and they were all big hits. Chaplin was a little bit more of a prima donna, and he would take forever to make a movie. And then when he did, it would be super expensive. So he kept throwing this whole, this whole assemblage out of whack. And so The Gold Rush was a movie that they were like, you need to make a big hit. You need right. to make a big hit. And he was like, okay, but I'm going to make it really expensive. And they're like, oh, God, don't screw this up. Because his movie right before this, he had tried to actually get creative, and he tried to make a movie that didn't have the tramp. It was called A Woman in Paris. And it was just... Okay. Right. So a lot was riding on this. There was a lot of anticipation. Everybody was looking forward to it. It had to be big. It had to be huge. It was kind of Titanic. But you hear even in that little piece that I played from the documentary that he took two months to just continually rewrite the script. Like he didn't seem happy with it. Uh, apparently there's 27 times the film's length of film that he shot. Like he shot so much. But, you know, you talk about this idea that 
you know, they created this really amazing collective, but um, they also, I don't think, paid the highest wages because those 2,500 prospectors were played by real vagrants that they paid $7.50 a day to. Uh, but the dog who dragged Chaplin around was paid $35. I mean, <laughs> the dog is trained. Hey, the dog is trained. <laughs> I mean, look, when that guy fell in the snow with his uh, sled on his back, that was a pretty, pretty big stunt. Well, yeah. And actually, you know, even though they did build this whole fake Alaskan city with all of this fake snow, when he started the project, he tried to film it more or less on location, not in Alaska, but he went to the Donner Pass. Wow. Yeah. He went up, you know, up to Northern California and he was like, well, just on the other side of the Donner Pass. Yeah. Where people starved to death, ate each other, became cannibals. And he put that into the film because he thought, you know, I can kind of make this funny. We'll have a moment where here we are stuck in a snow cabin and... I have to eat my shoe. Oh my God. The shoe scene. I had never seen this before. I never knew that this existed. And, and everyone's like, Oh, the shoe scene. I mean, I think the, the uh, dancing role scene is kind of the, the quintessential a memorable moment from this film. Like the gift worthy moment is the dancing shoe scene as immortalized uh, or even done better by Johnny Depp and Benny and June. I think done worse. I think done uh, of worse. course, I, I think of, of worse. course, done worse. Of course, <laughs> I mean, yeah. of course. No, I went back. I mean, the dancing shoe scene, the dancing. Now we've got to be calling it the dancing shoe scene. Sorry, the bread shoe. Yes, the dancing shoe, roll. It's a lot of shoe humor. It is a lot of shoe humor. That's, I never thought about that. The shoe, the actual shoe, becomes food, and then the actual oh, food becomes shoes. Whoa. Mind blown. That dancing roll scene was so popular that. In Berlin, they would stop the movie at that point, rewind it, and play it again. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand why, because I think the uh, eating the shoe is a much more uh, a much more insane scene. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of shoe talk. Maybe we'll let Charlie Chaplin set up the moment of of the dancing shoes. And just so people could picture if they haven't seen this in a minute, Charlie Chaplin is having a fantasy sequence because he's invited the girl that he loves over for New Year's dinner. And he's planned on her bringing her couple of friends. He's gotten everybody presents. It's And it's this girl's really, a real heel. She's a real mean girl. Well, she's a prostitute. What does it? Well, wait a second, Amy. Are you saying that all prostitutes are, are mean girls? No, but I'm saying that Charlie Chaplin has fallen in love with a prostitute. And I think it must be built into the movie that he doesn't know she's a prostitute. Oh. Right? He's too innocent to have any sense that the girl that he loves is not the girl that he thinks she is. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. I mean, she has to be, right? Like, if you're a girl in that area of Alaska, you're not there for fun. Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, she clearly is up there having a snowball fight. She seems like she's having a lot of fun up there. She's kind of But I mean, it seemed like she loved that guy, Jim, right? I mean, didn't she have like that or the big handsome guy? I felt like they were in a relationship. I guess I didn't understand that the prostitution element of it. But now when I think about when she was up on the top, you know, the the top of the balcony, I'm like, I could see that. I guess I can see that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I mean, it's just so impractical to wear sleeveless sequins unless you have to do it for work. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true. But anyway, so he has tried to woo her by having this big dinner party, which I think is so sweet. I Mm -hmm. appreciate the way that Chaplin finds the humor in a man just doing something sincerely. Yeah. He gets everybody presents. I love it. He's basically getting those little Christmas crackers, putting them in nice little uh, glasses. And he's earned all this money by uh, shoveling the snow. 
Yeah, and the Christmas crackers make me think. I'd never wondered this before, but is the tramp himself British? Like, I know mm. Charlie Chaplin is British, right. but crackers are such a British thing. Is that him implying that his character is also British? I don't know. We had crackers in our house, but I guess we were you just cheating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have crackers every year. Really? I love the tradition of crackers. Yeah. I mean, what even comes out of one? Oh, the best. A totally lame joke. A little <laughs> thing that seems like out of steel or something like that. Like, it depends on what kind of cracker you get. You can spend a little bit of money and get like a nicer cracker and they have like a better toy in it. And then they come a crown. So it's like a joke, a toy, and a crown, a paper crown. And it's really fun. Everyone wears crowns and you get your little cracker. It's a, it's a, it's a good time. I had no idea that ever happened on this side of America. I'm going to bring a cracker in here. I got them right in my living room right now. I'm still taking down my Christmas stuff. You had crackers at this Christmas? Yeah, I have them every Christmas. So you, you or kids grow up thinking that crackers are normal? Yeah. Wow. Crackers are basically like, I mean, if you don't know what we're talking about, they almost look like um, those finger torture toys that you had when you were a kid. You put your you put your um, your fingers in on either side and you pull them really hard and they explode in the center. So it's almost like having a little firecracker. Explode is is a is a um, hyperbole. It just makes a snap sound, crack, and then inside it's full of stuff. It's like a miniature pinata in a in a tube shape. Everyone gets a, their baby pinata. <laughs> there might be candy in it too, depending I mean, on the cracker. That's impressive. That's impressive. I, it, I think it's sweet how he even has the moment where the mule knocks on the door and eats a little bit of his cracker. Yes, and he takes the time to. Give his cracker to the friend who would have been sitting there just to move everything around. But why did these girls blow him off? It's this moment of sacrifice. Was it a miscommunication or were these girls like, yeah, yeah, we'll see you on New Year's Eve? Or were they like, come and, you know, we're sex workers and you can come on New Year's Eve and you can have a good time at eight o'clock. I mean, what was what was I didn't get what was going on underneath that? I think they were just screwing with him. Right. Right. Because then later on, they are like at first you're like. Oh, is there something here? And then later, it's like, let's go mess with that little bum. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I let's guess, go mess wow. with that little bum with a gun. Yeah, like, I mean, let's go play a prank on him. My boyfriend's walking in with a gun. That's hilarious. I mean, that was yeah, that was a little intense. I mean, but there was something about her being so mean that was I enjoyed. I was like, oh, that's a different way. Like she's not a not kind of just smitten with him or even finding him like slightly cute. She's like, that's nah, a bum. Get out of here, bum. You know, <laughs> here's your 750. Go be an extra in a Charlie Chaplin movie. I found it refreshing too, honestly, that it wasn't saccharine because I yeah. did really love the ending of City Lights. But yes. that's the idea of like the beautiful, angelic, blind girl. Right, yes. Who I respect her more when she gets her sight and she's like, I kind of want a handsome rich man. Is that okay? You know, that this woman is just clearly like that the whole time. By the way, how bad does Charlie Chaplin smell, do you think? Like, does the tramp smell? He's got to, right? He's got to smell bad. I mean, like if the tramp is a real character, he's got to. I mean, he's got to be. He's got to be real. I mean, the guy doesn't have a shoe. Yeah. He literally has like a bag around his foot at one point. Like this guy is, this guy is 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 not a pleasant. This is not pleasant at all. No, he's pouring kerosene on his shoe, and nobody even notices that there's he an extra ate, smell. He ate his own shoe. He ate a candle with salt on it. This guy does not. This guy is rough. I mean, you think I, his breath is good? No, you think he's ever seen a toothbrush? 
I think if he saw a toothbrush, he would have eaten it. Yeah, I mean, well, but then he's not an idiot, though. That's the thing. Like, he comes from a world where he understands uh, decor. Like, you know, so what What would happen with the tramp's downfall? Because he segues uh, perfectly into rich life at the end, and yet he is able to create a beautiful Christmas dinner. So where was the downfall of the tramp? That's what my prequel story is going to get to. Why did the tramp become the tramp? What is this, an Arthur wow. story? I'm so glad that... Chaplin died before the George Lucas model of prequels started. Uh, because can you imagine the characters we'd get? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm sorry, but we are going off track. But to say <laughs> the uh, the dinner roll scene that we were talking about uh, so long ago. And I and, and you were saying that Johnny Depp is better as a physical comedian. Worse. No, you worse, said worse. you said better. And you worse, said, worse, worse. said better husband, too, I think, right? I wow. think I, I wrote that down. Yeah. You said better partner. That's what you said better partner. Okay, yeah. Oh, God. That's a real race to the bottom. <laughs> Oh yeah, really? Between these two, right? There, there are not. There are similarities, but they're both. Uh, they don't seem to be uh, killing it in the husband department. Well, yeah. I mean, to me, I was thinking about that a lot on this watch of the Gold Rush. What a great central irony it is, or maybe a great comedic prototype that Chaplin is a guy who's like, I'm gonna play this character who's the biggest sweetheart. Women just push him around. He would show a girl the nicest time. I am yeah. the typical sweet, nice guy. Just wait. I could give her, you know, newspaper dinner napkins. Yeah. I would be the prince of her life. And I'm going to make all of these women who go see my movies fall in love with me as that man and think yeah. I am that man. And then in real life, I am the worst motherfucker on the planet. I am a horrible human being, terrible to women. I mean, that's what, like the Louis C.K. model? I mean... Well, I mean, there. I mean, I think you can. Besides Louis, I think you can pick a lot of other people, but that I think have an air of like, oh my gosh, they seem so sweet. And then, like, you read an article, and it's like they threw a TV at their child's head, and it's like, <laughs> oh, uh, all right. Like, I think that that's often just an element of this business is that I think that you idolize the person who is on screen and they present themselves in the way that they feel like they want to be presented. And it, it often is why you don't want to meet your heroes because they're never going to be as interesting as the character or the, what you believe them to be. But I think for Chaplin, I think it's really telling that he is a person very aware of image and the biggest movie star in the mm -hmm. world. And the worse he gets in, in his actual life, the nicer the tramp gets. You right. Know, he well, don't you think that a that... little bit more rough edged in his career? And here you, he still has rough edges. I appreciate about the tramp that he's not just a complete sweetheart. He right. has he gets huffy. No, he, he has definitely dignity. has an attitude. He has an attitude. But he still is on this arc of getting sweeter and sweeter and sweeter yes. as Chaplin's reputation in the public is getting worse and worse and worse. Well, what I like about him is that he is you're right. He is a three-dimensional character. And I think that that's a really interesting thing. And talking about Buster Keaton, you know, and and watching that film, and I'm only talking about that film, I think that what's really amazing about Chaplin is the way they can tell a really full story as, as, as someone who is making a silent film. I mean, this is a, a fully realized, it doesn't feel like just A to B. You know, where, um, you know, and I think that because of that, he creates a character that that you have questions about, that he is a fully lived in person, not just a uh, a body to do pranks or stunts. And there's plenty of stunts and there's plenty of really funny moments, but and there are plenty of emotional moments. But literally, there are there are so many different emotional beats that you have to go to, like 
just to continue to carry the movie because the movie is an hour and 30 minutes or, you know, a little bit under that. And that's a lot of work to do with no voice. Yeah, I, I love Buster Keaton. And I, I remember when we talked about Buster Keaton in the general, I was like, how come he only has one film and Chaplin right. has three films? You know, where's my Buster Keaton love in here? Especially because the general's not my favorite Buster Keaton film. Right, I yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of well, Buster we're, that's not being represented. We're saying the shorts are where he kind of succeeded, which kind of goes to this point, right? Which is like, he's better in short chunks than a big film. It's true. When I think about a Buster Keaton personality, it is really sweet and simple. You know, he's like, I'm a guy who wants this one girl, I like her. And then right. just stuff happens. Yeah. And he navigates it. You know, he navigates this world of chaos in pursuit of one singular goal. Whereas I think... Chaplin's character, especially the tramp, he has so much need. And I think it's a lot of relatable need. You know, he wants money. He wants to be an individual in this world. He is different. He sets himself apart. He has a specific personality that I do agree is like lacking in the in the Buster Keaton world. Well, you, and I think it's really relatable. His his hunger for so many things. And going back to, you know, my point at the top, I think that's that's why you can't take your eyes off the screen because what he does is communicates all of that with physicality and uh, and really makes you watch his every movement because the title cards are few and far between. I mean, they're there for the bigger plot points, but for all the characters, you know, even big Jim McKay, like, you know, he's doing things as well. And I think that that showed me what a great director he was because he's also directing other people to have a little bit more of an inner life to them. They're just not, they're just not black and white, even though yes, they are technically black and white, but they're not black and white characters. And I, and I, I really just, I got that. I think watching both of these films and I do like this one more than city lights. And I like city lights a lot, but I think city lights felt to me a little bit more saccharine. It just felt a little, um, you know, just a little simpler. And this one is really, really wonderful. Yeah, I kind of agree. I thought I thought that City Lights was just going to set my bar. I was like, we're going to come in hot. We're going to do City yeah. Lights. It'll be the best of the best. Um, because to me, when I think of Chaplin, I think of City Lights. And then I also think of uh, Modern Times, which we're going to get to. Right. And people, I, th- I think when you picture Chaplin, maybe Modern Times might be the very first one. Is that it's the one where he's in the cog of the wheel? Yeah, in the cog yeah. of the wheel. I feel like it's kind of a toss-up between cog and the wheel and eating the shoe. Right. They're, yeah, they're both I would there. say toss-up between cog and the wheel and dancing and bread. And dancing bread? Yeah. Yeah, that's probably fair. You yeah. know, uh, but 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 this one, I like laughed out loud a lot when I was watching this in my house. Well, yeah, I did too. I started like I wrote down like I'm having really big gut laughs at this movie. Like I mean, starting from just even the bear gag in the beginning of the film when the the bear just kind of comes out a real bear, which there's no special effect there. We're not talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark where there's a you know uh, a plate of glass between Indy's face and like uh, a snake. This is a real oh, is fucking a real bear. bear. That is a 600-pound bear named John Brown. Whoa. And his handlers are always like, John Brown, Brown's great. John Brown actually also worked with Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton knew that bear. That oh, bear, wow. That bear made the rounds. And they're always like, that bear's great. And that bear definitely bit people. Oh, oh it's a bear, of course. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, like, there's just so much fun little things. Even the compass gag, like, all these little moments at the top. It, I was like, oh, wow, I'm really, I'm just, this movie just has a lot of, of jokes, and I think it also deals with like um, different things than you see in a film too, because it is about you know people wanting to become rich, and you know, and these people who are toiling at great expense to their body um, 
to try to get their fortune and make their name. And, you know, and it's a different story than what we, I think, have seen even on this list to a certain degree. Like, you know, there's a touch of Sierra Madre. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, And I think there's something so exciting about that film, too, is like, oh, it's fun to see these movies that break the the mold of what we're assuming an AFI movie is like. And there are plenty of examples of ones that break the mold. But every time you see them, it's like, ooh, it is like, oh, that's do the right thing. That feels different than anything that we've watched for the AFI list. Like, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, it's, these are the things that are a little bit exciting. I think that's why I go back to 2001, too. It's like, it just feels very, very different, you know? Yeah, because uh, if we're assembling a bouquet of movies, yeah. I want each flower to be different. Yes, I think that that's really important. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, when he makes this movie in 1925, the Alaskan gold rush was still living history. You know, there were people, some of the people who helped found L.A., founded the L.A. that we know with gold rush money that they made. I mean, we're not very far away from a couple buildings built by gold rush, gold rush veterans. Um, we've got Alexander Pantages on one end of, of Hollywood. Yeah. And on the other end, we have all of Sid Grauman's theaters. Both of those guys were gold miner people who came out of Alaska. Oh, wow. I thought you meant people that were... In the movie Gold Rush and made so much money in the residuals. <laughs> I really did. I was like, oh, wow. Interesting. Okay, cool. No, I mean, even right. the guy who founded the Brown Derby here in Hollywood was a Gold Rush veteran. So wow. when Chaplin was making this movie, he could talk to Gold Rush people about what it was like. He was really, really good friends with Sid Grauman, by the way. So this is something that also at the time when it comes out, it is it is appealing to what people have gone. I mean, that's an interesting point of view because it's sort of like, it's in the news, it's there. It's kind of like what we talked about with Grapes of Wrath, like this idea that this is happening now. So it, the topicality of it also makes it a huge success. Exactly. And he he premieres the movie at Sid Grauman's Egyptian Theater, mm-hmm. which I love. I love, yeah. I love the Egyptian. If anybody in here is not from LA and can't go to the Egyptian, if you ever make it here, go to the Egyptian. It's beautiful. It's, it's such beautiful. a beautiful theater. It's beautiful. But he premieres it there. But I read, I read this really funny story, by the way, about his friendship with Sid Grauman. Mm-hmm. Um, so one time, um, Sid Grauman calls Charlie up and he calls him like in the middle of the night from his house. And he's like, Charlie, I need you to come over here. I am in huge, huge trouble. And so Charlie runs over to Sid Grauman's house. And when he gets there, there's this blood-soaked bed and a woman in the middle of the oh, bed. Oh, my God. Very much like Godfather 1 or 2? Two? 2, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much like Godfather 2. And Sid Grauman is like, 
you have to help me out. We have to get rid of this body. And Charlie is like, we have to call the cops. And Sid Grauman's like, no, we got it. We no, just help me, help me, help yeah. me. And Chaplin's like, I'm calling the cops, motherfucker. And that is when Sid Grauman was like, it's just ketchup blood. That's a dummy. We're fine. <laughs> I love it. I love a good prank. I'm sorry. I just got it in my head that, that that Chaplin of the Gold Rush would have taken that dummy covered in ketchup and then licked all the ketchup off to stay alive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it would have been delicious. <laughs> Probably would have eaten some of those uh, mannequin hands, too. But, you know, speaking of this, it, this goes into what I was thinking about. Like, for Chaplin to do a film about hunger, I mean, that's this movie, if you would say, you know, one of the one, I don't know if it's a thing thematic thing but it is like it is looking for sustenance it is like it is a simple idea of like he, this character is motivated by eating for a majority of the film uh and love but i mean and um but you need to eat before you can love anyone i mean it's interesting though because uh the minute he falls in love he's able to come up with a couple of job ideas to get that uh to get that money so you know Listen, maybe girls gotta eat too you gotta uh, feed me i want some beans make but, me that roast but I just think that like to be able to find humor in such a you know uh, I think such a dark idea too. I mean you know and I and now it's become cliche because we've seen so many Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes where it is just you know characters on a deserted island and all that sort of stuff. But you very rarely see a movie where our main characters are struggling with with that like that that of simply just like getting food. Yeah, and I think Chaplin felt that really strongly because when he was growing up, he was often hungry. You know, mm. he was near orphaned. We had he had a terrible childhood, and I think he knew hunger really personally. When this so film it came actually out, makes it sense that he's a, a bad guy. He, we can forgive him then, right? Eh. He had a bad childhood. I mean, well, look, yeah, no, no, no. Let's eh. forgive him. Come on, everything's cool now. It's all, yeah, it's all, well, it's I'm all good. I'm still gonna talk about his <laughs> wife that he had when this yeah. movie came out. Uh, but yeah, I, he would tell reporters when The Gold Rush came out that he felt this was his most personal film. Mm. And I wonder if in a way that's why he wanted to revisit this one in particular, you know, to kind of cover up even the parts he felt like were too revealing at the time, to mm. soften some of the edges, to get rid of Georgia Hale's character as much as he could, which is what he ends up doing in, when he really? cuts it in 1942, because he was having an affair with her while he made this film. Oh, wow. I mean, he was having an affair with a lot of people. So sure. just, she was just one of many. Right, right. But yeah, he cut out their kiss when he redid the film because he was like, it doesn't need to be about that. It doesn't need to be about her. He even changed the note that she gives him. You know, in this movie, yeah. she gives a love note that she intends to be for her quasi boyfriend yeah. saying, I love you. He just rewrote the note and had her say, sorry, I didn't make you dinner. Wow. Yeah. So he could cut out that whole middle segment where he thinks she loves him. Talking about like the personal nature of it and talking about and hunger and stuff like that. I'm thinking about the other hunger scene uh, too, which is like where he does eat his own shoe. And obviously this is like a heightened idea, but like this idea of this, like what you do and where you go for desperation. And I'm sure like Chaplin had, I mean, never ate his own clothes, but you know, this idea, like even the candlestick, like eating salt, like I feel like eating salt was such an interesting thing. I was like, oh yeah, I could see someone doing that. I, I know in like, you know, when I was in college and certainly not broke, but because I was in college, but you would put like Tabasco sauce on a cracker and be like, well, this is, this is food. This is, this is working. Like, you know, just flavoring the, the unflavorful just to give you something in your belly. And, uh, yeah, my dad always told me that when he was in college, he lost 30 pounds because he couldn't afford food. So he would buy a can of Campbell's vegetable soup. And then instead of one can of water, put in three cans of water oh, just yeah. to keep himself full. Oof. Um, well, this this shoe scene where they decide to like 
eat his own shoe. Again, another impressive scene. The shoe looks amazing. It was made out of licorice. Um, and it took uh, three days and 63 takes to get what he wanted from that scene. Um, but that shoe is, it's so good looking. Like The way that he treats, I mean, this is this scene I laughed at so hard. The way that he treats the, the shoelace as like a pasta side dish, you know, and he's like kind of twirling that and also, you know, taking, you know, eating a little bit of the shoe and he fillets the shoe so you almost see the bones, but they are the nails in the shoe, which by the way, those nails are very long. Um, but Charlie was actually rushed to the hospital after uh, suffering insulin shock from doing that scene so many times. Whoa, from eating that much licorice? Yeah, and the other guy just said he had uh, inconvenient laxative effects. Oh, I mean, I think that is such a good example of what Chaplin's humor is. You know, because I can imagine a kind of lazier comedy being like, he boiled the shoe. Now he's going to chew it. How sad is that? Yeah. Because he's eating the shoe. Bada ba bada ba. You know, no, the, way, it's like, the way that Big Jim eats the shoe. Jim, Big Jim is in that movie. Big Jim is just chewing on a shoe and looking mad about it. Yeah. But Chaplin knows that the humor is from. His delicacy, the way that he's going to test the shoe with his fork to see if it's done, the way he's yeah. going to keep this completely straight and make the best of the situation and he suck really on has the nails a, like it's bones. He literally makes a meal out of it, Amy. <laughs> he does. He <laughs> but figures I mean, but that, out but that's all the like, perfect yeah. humor of it. You have Big Jim sobbing in humor and he's like, this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. We can do this. Anyway, you've heard, though, of the documentary Warner Herzog Eats His Shoe. Yes, I did, but I don't know anything about it. Okay, okay. So this is a documentary that comes out in the early 80s, and it's building off of this idea in the gold rush. What happened is Werner Herzog was friends with a young filmmaker who had yet to make his first film named Errol Morris. Oh, interesting. Love me some Errol Morris. And Werner Herzog was like, you got to finish your film. You got to finish your film. The film that he was working on was Gates of Heaven, his first documentary, which is about a pet cemetery here in California. Right. It's an awesome film. And it's the film that really started his career off. But then he made Vernon, Florida. Then he made The Blue Line. Then he became... One of my favorite documentary filmmakers of all time. Anyway, Werner Herzog was giving him a hard time about getting his ass off off the ground and like making this movie, getting his career started. So he finally told Errol that if he ever finished the movie, he would eat his shoe. Errol finished the movie and they wound up making this big production out of Werner Herzog eating his shoe that became its own documentary. That was a 20 minute long documentary. But he prepares the shoe fastidiously. He even has Alice Waters, you know, of Shea Panisse. Yeah. He has her come in and boil the shoe, prepare it for him. This is them talking about it. It should be like a pig's foot that uh, gets, uh, it's always a little, uh, the leather should all soften up and to serve it with something like uh, the beans or a chili and lots of onions sprinkled on top and a little raw garlic and some uh, spices like some oregano or some more of the rosemary. There's a lot of, uh, of garlic inside and onions. And with uh, chili, chili and bean, yes, we forgot the salt. That's right. Yeah. Wow, he I can. puts in so much hot sauce, by the way. So your hot sauce theory holds up. I love that, and I, I did not know that the guy from The Mandalorian did anything before that. That's so cool. I know. There's a world of cinema if you just open your eyes. Um, talking about this idea of eating the shoe and and how many takes it took to eat the shoe. It just seemed like he was a real taskmaster. And we know, uh, again, his personal life, and it seems like his directorial life was to create a very intense uh, set. And I, I thought it was really interesting when I heard that uh, that the actor Max Swain, who you know has this big, thick beard in the movie, he quit 
He was like, I'm done. I'm done with this guy. I, I don't want to do this movie anymore. Um, and he, and in almost in a moment of just like anger, shaves off his beard, his big, thick beard. And then um, Chaplin's like, you got to come back. Please come back. Please come back. And uh, and so he comes back and Chaplin's like, well, where's your beard? And he is like, well, I shaved it. And he's like, well, hmm, I don't want to do a fake beard. Grow that beard out again. We'll wait for you. And like back to his idea of him spending so much money, he waits for a man to grow that big, thick beard. And I will tell you, as as a person who has uh, had beards and and mustaches, it's that, that's not a that's a lengthy process to wait for a character. So it makes me understand, like, oh, that's why that character kind of disappears for a large chunk of the film because he's growing his beard back. Well, and it makes you understand why Mary Pickford was like, "Are you fucking serious, Chaplin? Get it together." I mean, he our halted, business needs money. By the way, he halted production. It wasn't like. Oh, I'll shoot other stuff while your beard grows. And it's like, all right, shutting down, waiting for beard growth. That is crazy. That is absolute perfectionism. I mean, do you think that that's a sane level of perfectionism? I think in film, you're putting everything on the line, right? And every time that you step up to the plate, it, and this is this is what makes film and television very different animals. It's like every time you step up to the plate, you have to make your best shot there's no there's no middle ground right like you it's like so i feel like for somebody like chaplin who's created this this united artist and and is somebody who's trying to maintain his not only success and uh and his stature in hollywood but also being the best at what he does in hollywood like so you, you know i think it's just like this idea like i have one shot i'm gonna use it all here and if i get to if it's good I get to make my next thing. And I think it's always about going to the next thing. And I, and, and if I, it's bad, it will live forever. I mean, this movie is living forever. I mean, it's not going anywhere. It's, you know, it's 2020. We're talking about a movie made in 1925. Like, fuck. Yeah. You know, there's so many movies that were made in 1925 that no one's talking about. No one cares to talk about. So I think that that's, you know, I think sometimes some of the greats do that. That's fair. I mean, my heart goes out to Mary Pickford because I would want a dream like United Artists to stay alive. And I wouldn't want her to be the person shouldering all of that burden of keeping it financially solvent. But, but we're not talking about her movies as much as we're talking about this movie. And that breaks my heart. But you right. see his attention to detail. I mean, even just when he's pretending to be a valet for that miner with the can of beans. Yeah. The way he is just chasing after him with the whisk broom and then pauses and dusts off the rope of the sled dogs. Like that pause of dusting off the rope of the sled dogs makes it feel so immediate. It doesn't just feel like a bit. It feels like that character living in the moment. What am I going to do? How do I, how do I keep this going? How do I keep this funny? Yeah. And that's where I think you see just his craft that he just thinks better than everybody else. But it, you know, we, we live in this world, you know, it, it doesn't even need to be underlined more, but there are people who are the pinups of the game, right? Do you think about even in, in basketball or something like that? You look at like, you know, like a Magic Johnson. Like Magic Johnson will always, you know, have some sort of air about it. Even Shaquille O'Neal, like, Wait, you know. Who did they play for? Uh, oh, my gosh. When was the last time the Lakers won a championship? A long time ago, right? <laughs> uh, was like, yeah, I think it was like in the, um, But, like, I mean, you look at these like, classic, you know, uh, these these players, and there's so many other amazing players around them and they are legitimately fantastic, but they don't have that one thing that makes them be these legends, you know, and, and the it's the Salieri problem. Yeah. I mean, that, that, and I think as we, you know, what's happening now in our society is we're having less Mozarts and we're having more Salieri's in a way, because we're, we're creating more stuff. Like, like I think we're getting out of the idea of like the big stars, like the big stars that were there 
are still there, but we haven't like really launched another huge star. We have bigger franchises. We have things like that. So it's interesting to see. I mean, we definitely have stars, but they're not like as inaccessible as they once were, no. you know? Well, I think, I think we've crowned a lot of Salieri's and pretended they're Mozart's. Mm. And also, I was talking about this the other day. I do think we're having a return to our current crop of movie stars. When I think about the people who feel like the biggest potential movie stars yeah. right now, people like Adam Driver, people like Emma Stone, they're really good at not being public. Oh, yeah, but I would argue, like, to me, I love Adam Driver. I think Adam Driver no, is me fan. too. But he's not, like, I can... I would guarantee you, you put, oh, well, I was going to say, you put him walking down the street and no one's going to recognize him. But because of Star Wars, they probably would. But and because he's but, also like a jillion feet tall right. and crooked. But, you know, but there are, but there is this world where some of our biggest stars are not necessarily even recognized because they're not doing the big budget things, you know. But now I guess Marvel really kind of was smart about going like, Oh, Benedict Cumberbatch, great. You come over here. Adam Driver, I mean, that's Disney. You come over. You know, and Adam Driver got into Star Wars before he was, like, big. But, I mean, he he exists more in the independent space. I would say that it's the same thing I think I'd say about John Hamm. It's like, I think John Hamm's a fantastic actor. He's really great. But I think for a while, people knew him more from being on SNL and 30 Rock than they did from Mad Men because it's just sort of like this more of a niche thing. So I think we're creating more niche celebrity than we are than this, like, public thing. But can you imagine... If, say, Adam Driver and John Hamm and Emma Stone and Octavia Spencer Mm -hmm. and all of the people that we really, really like right now could figure out how to form their own collective and make their own movies. Well, yeah, I mean. And get out of Disney? uh, Well, I mean, I think Adam Driver's out of Disney. I mean, like. I think all those people you just mentioned aren't in any big studio contracts. They're all making their interesting movies. I think that. What you're seeing, though, is a, a company like Netflix is fostering that talent by signing, you know, these really interesting directors to contracts and putting them out there. They're doing that. I also think that you see it with people like Blumhouse. You know, Blumhouse does an amazing job of saying, all right, we're going to we're going to empower the creator, the creator like M. Night. You're going to be the owner of this thing like Jordan Peele, like Jordan Peele. Is, you know, I think you're having a lot more people going like, I'm forming my own production company that's going to, you know, foster my own thing. But I don't know. I think there's a lot more control over work when you're an auteur that's successful. And I I think that there's a lot more homes for it. I think that if Charlie Chaplin and Emma Pickford came here, I think that Chaplin would have a Netflix deal. And I don't don't mean that in like, I don't mean that in a bad way. I think that like Ted Sarandos would be like, great. What do you want to do? You're our Adam Sandler. Like, wait, go for it. Like, you know what I mean? It's not like, I, I, it sounds crazy to say that because it seems like I'm being uh, dismissive, but I think that that's what's happening. You know, it's like, do make your shit. I don't care. You do whatever you want. We love you. Make your stuff. And, and he probably do it. It would be hugely successful. You know, Chaplin in, uh, you know, uh, was it murder mystery? Murder two? mystery, yeah, murder mystery too. How did I know you were gonna say? I, I, I literally was searching for it. Um, that's true. I would like to see the world break apart. Yeah, there you go. With well, a I hammer, mean, the way the cliff does in this movie. Oh my gosh, break the it cliff. apart! Break it apart! Well, I mean, we talk about the special effects. Special effects are amazing. The house blowing away, the cliff breaking apart. Like there are some really impressive special effects there. There are. I mean, we were talking about special effects in King Kong, and here we're taking even a step further back. We're going eight years further back in history, and you have little miniature chaplain dangling out of a building that's like literally a cliffhanger. It is literally a cliffhanger. He's literally on a cliff hanging and trying to scrabble his way back up. 
And that rocking house is such a neat special effects. I think they did it with oh my ropes, gosh, maybe. Yeah. Just having strong people on both sides of the house pull it back and forth. But you get that just physical fear. It's really fantastic. Yeah, I I love I mean it was like I was like, oh, this house is like on a gimbal. It, it just feels I, I also just love all the small touches. Like he he make this movie makes you feel cold. Like if that makes sense too. Like he really spends a lot of time in like getting uh just making you feel these locations like that house like when the wall buckles and then a piece of the wood pops out and you know and snow kind of falls yeah. in it's when like, they open the door and he's just blown across the room yeah. outside and it's funny because you think about how immersed we are in our you know when we put on our sonos speakers they are an advertisement of the show and they make a great speaker and you are immersed in this amazing sound of hearing wind and snow and hail and and you're not really hearing any of that sort of stuff you know so you're doing again all that visually you know like maybe in a moment or two you're hearing like a little thing but it's like it really is uh you know, it comes into the music of it too like the music is dictating so much of it and it, it made me think like what would it be like to be composing music for this, like to be playing, you know, there, which actually brings us to our special guest today. Well, you know, Paul, you and I have done a lot of lip flapping, a lot of jibber jabbering, yes. a lot of talking, but I think in keeping with the silent era, we should do some piano listening. I think what we should do is we should talk to a guy named Cliff Vitalik, and Cliff Vitalik specializes in playing the piano live for silent era movies. And he's actually doing it this week in Los Angeles for the Gold Rush by complete coincidence, which uh, lit up our absolute lives. And so we had to get him on the phone. Let's say hi to Cliff. I love it. Well, so Cliff, you specialize in playing music for silent movies. I mean, how does somebody get into that in the modern era? Great question. I mean, I was in, I was in film school and I was majoring in film music composition back in North Carolina at the North Carolina School of the Arts. And, um, they were doing silent movie, and they came around to ask any of us if we wanted to try it. I'd been a professional piano player for a while, and uh, thought it would sounded like a blast. And I, I, I did it. Uh, the first movie I actually did was a Chaplin film called Easy Street, which is still really near and dear to my heart. I think it's a great film, and um, I, I kind of fell in love with the medium. I thought this was really a natural thing for me, and. Um, after that, you know, it's a long story, but I, I fell backwards and backwards and backwards into doing it quite a bit in Los Angeles when I moved out here. Now, so let's start even with just that first Chaplin film that you did with Easy Street. Did How did you even start? Did you watch the film and then kind of compose your own music to it? I mean, is that different even than how they would do it in the olden days where they just have to extemporize? I did. Uh, so answer to the first part of your question, that's what I did. I watched it over and over, and I composed my own music to it. Um, back in the old days, they uh, sometimes that's the way people did it. And other times, there was a score that traveled with the film. <clears throat> there were plenty of scores that were actually uh, composed for films that traveled around with them. Some of them still exist. Uh, sometimes there, there was what was called a cue sheet that uh, you know had... Uh, thematic suggestions for accompanist. Um, there were all types of accompanists in the silent movie era. There were ensembles. There were individuals who played just like me. Um, there were, uh, you know, orchestras uh, that were dedicated to doing it. You know, um, it was a it was a job for musicians um, in different towns 
all over the country. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's varied. Um, but like I said, there were scores that were composed that traveled with the film. Sheet music would travel with the film. Uh, they would do it, with, you know, I mean, go from Los Angeles to Cleveland. And in Cleveland, someone would decide what they were going to do with it, you know, what was the most economic thing they could do, what they want, how they wanted to present it. And uh, I'm sure it was... I'm sure it was varied, you know, I mean, really, uh, uh, you know, a potpourri of things went on with it. Well, yeah, I mean, the scale of this always blows my mind, because even (laughs) just here in Los Angeles in the silent era, we had at least 15 (laughs) big movie houses. I think we had more than that. And then you think about all the movie houses in all of the towns and all of America. That is a lot of musicians. Yeah, it is. It is. So it was a it was a job. I don't know if it was a great job, but it was a job. And a lot of people who became composers probably did it from from my point of view it's it's one of the greatest uh improvisational exercises you can ever step into as a musician because that's what i do i actually i never play anyone else's music not for the most part i don't even play like little themes you know uh that people know i I kind of make it all up myself very often i don't even get to see the movie before i do it these days you know i mean it, it comes so quickly sometimes that they're they're not on dvd or they're not available to watch i don't get a screener and so you know i have to make it up on the fly and um hopefully it sounds just like it it was rehearsed for 12 months Whoa, I mean, that's kind of blowing my mind because I do think there's sort of so many layers to this. Like, I would imagine that you know, we have this stereotype, I think, of silent movie, movie music that I think comes a lot from cartoons, which is something we've been talking about lately, you mm. know, where it's like yeah. very telegraphed, you know, do, 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 do. And so <laughs> yeah, I'm, right. I'm imagining yeah. making it exactly. up on the, on the spot and like the push-pull of being like, that is what mentally goes with this, but also I'm an artist. I want to put my own spin on it. Yeah, sure. I mean... Okay, when you talk about cartoon music, obviously, you know, you're referring probably to Carl Stallings, you know, and people like that who, uh, you know, he scored all the Warner Brothers cartoons or most of them. And um, wow, amazing. And, you know, there, there's a lot of Mickey Mousing in there. That's what musicians call it when you see action on the, the, the actual the screen and there's a musical cue that goes blink, you know, if someone pulls a hair out of someone's head or something. I can't and, believe uh, that Disney hasn't sued y'all to make y'all stop saying that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Hey, it's always this is, this is always the first time, so you know they might be calling you. Um, but uh, yeah, we, that's what composers call it. You know, when you actually score to the action on film. Well, I do that quite a bit. You know, I mean, especially in comedy, it kind of calls for it, just like when Bugs Bunny does it. You know, I mean, it calls for it. So Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, those movies. You know, Fatty Arbuckle. They, you know, I mean, you want to see that. You want to actually hear that. But at the same time, there's another layer to it, like you're saying, um, where you do want to have themes and you want to have, um, you know, some, some compositional, uh, content there that's, that's going into it. Yeah. And I'm imagining, I mean, a lot of these directors of the silent era were known for being auteurs, perfectionists, having a stamp they Mm -hmm. put on things, being in the case of Chaplin, also people like D.W. Drift Griffith, Control freaks. Right. And so yes. I am amused by the idea that they could have sent out one film. And even if they had the sheet music, you know, the piano player in Peoria might have been like, ha ha, I'm going to do my own oh, spin yeah. on it and take control of the film. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, you know, music impacts the, 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 the film so heavily. I mean, it completely colors your vision of a movie. When you're watching and you're listening, you don't even really think about the fact that you're listening to music. But, you know, that score, no matter whether it's, you know, The Gold Rush with Charlie Chaplin or Silence of the Lambs, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's really driving you to an emotional point, you know, where you are. It's coloring what you're seeing. 
quite a bit, it's manipulating you. Um, so all those musicians that got that, that music, like that sheet music, um, they had the opportunity to manipulate the audience in their own way. And believe me, it was different with every single one of them because, you know, you can give the same piece of music to a thousand different piano players and it's going to sound a thousand different ways. It's true. And we're talking to you a couple of days before you actually do this performance of, of the music. Yes. I would love Correct. to hear your thoughts about what you've planned for the Gold Rush. I mean, this is one that I'm sure you've seen in advance. And so you've been mm-hmm. able to, um, to scheme something. Yeah, um, Right, I've been watching it. Been watching it today, actually. Um, I, I do. I've got a. I've got a really nice theme going for the little tramp, and I've got a really nice love theme that I'm going to put in there. And uh, they're both things that I've I've worked up. And um, you know, I'm kind of working on some danger music because you know it is a rugged adventure pick. That is, <laughs> it's a comedy, but it's based on the Donner Expedition. So, <laughs> you know, uh, there's some dark moments in there. There's some scary moments in there, and there's some really. F- hilariously funny moments in there, uh, especially involving wind. <laughs> How do you make wind on a piano? That's a good question. Um, lots of triplets, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I wish It'll you were happen, by though. your piano. I want to hear. I want to hear a little bit. Well, hang on. <laughs> hang on. I am by the piano. Ooh. Maybe something like that. I don't know if you heard that. I did. That's what a triplet is. <laughs> okay. I didn't know what a triplet was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Three, three. Triplet, 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 triplet. Um, you know, I mean, it kind of sounds like something's lifting off the ground when you do that. And, you know, <laughs> Chaplin himself actually lifts off the ground. It's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. What about the, tra- what about the tramp steam himself? Um, you know, you, when, you, when, you <laughs> when you see Charlie, anytime I, I play for Charlie, I, I realize he's like a dancer. You know, when you, when you watch him, he's he's like a dancer, and Buster Keaton is also like a dancer to me. And uh, Charlie Chaplin is like Fred Astaire. He kind of glides over the, the floor, like, you know, with huge grace. And Buster Keaton is like Gene Kelly, like an ultimate athlete, you know. So when I see Char- Charlie, I always try to play something really light but really fun. And let's see if I can do that. Just a sec. And so forth. That's going to be a, a little theme. You know, I'm that, noticing. Uh, I can hear the dignity in that. We were talking a little bit about dignity, and I'm imagining <laughs> the music you would play for mm-hmm. a Fatty Arbuckle routine would have a different, more of a pratfall tone. Well, possibly, but you know, Fatty. When I when I see Fatty, he was really graceful. You know, That's true. Uh, I think Jackie Gleason took a lot from him. You know, because he's this huge man. But he just dance, he just glides across the screen, you know, so that would depend on the situation. But sometimes he is really, you know, I mean, there's, <laughs> there are a lot of, a lot of big falls and uh, a lot of, uh, lot of stomping around, too. <laughs> I mean, if you don't mind me making you play one more, I'd love to hear the sound of villainy. Villainy. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a good one. Hang on a sec. <laughs> And so forth. You know, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I love silent movies and I watch a lot of silent movies. And I've, I keep seeing mm. this trend happen of modern day electronic composers making modern, modern, modern <laughs> right. sounding music to go with things like 
like Greed, you know, a film that I right. love very much, which I think like Radiohead yeah. might have done a little bit of music for the four hour cut of Greed. I, interesting. It's interesting to me that music from the present can also work on something that we so identify as being from the past. Yeah, sure. And, and, uh, and, and it does, you know, I mean, I think, you know, you see quite a few things like Metropolis and things like that done with, uh, you know, George Ray Maroder in the eighties, he did a, a, a score of Metropolis. Um, and some of them work and some of them don't, the electronic aspect of it. Sometimes it is a fantastic thing. Sometimes it really does go with the film. Sometimes it doesn't quite work for me, but I'm, you know, that's just a personal thing. Um, but it, it is surprising what music can go with a piece of film, especially, I mean, even if it's from the 1920s and it's Radiohead playing to it, it seems like there's, there's, there's a meaning being ascribed to it, you know? And I can see Radiohead doing Greed. That would be fantastic. What about Pink Floyd and The Wizard of Oz? Ah, you know, I did that one time. I watched it. Um, <laughs> I thought it was great. I thought it was really cool. And, you know, you, you watch it and... Um, you know, when money comes on and, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's actually really fantastic. You know, that juxtaposition of a really old film and this 70s rock prog band. There, there's a really cool thing happening there for some reason. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I should let you go. But I just, I mean, for, for those of us who don't live in L.A. and won't get to see you play the live piano for the Gold Rush. What is it like huh. when you get to have a bunch of people in a theater, watching a movie together with you playing the piano, and you have the pieces that make it feel not so different than it would have in 1925. What is that energy in the room like? It's amazing. It's like being in the Rolling Stones. You know, what I mean, it's like it's it's huge. It's uh, it's it's got a it's got it's got its own life. And anytime you can see a film with a, a live accompaniment, it's just going to change. It's it's going to be that's the way it was really meant to be presented. That's the way it was, you know, designed to be presented. Um, you know, when they were making these films, you always have to know they they didn't really have a concept until like maybe they're in the late silent era that there would ever be anything else except a live accompaniment to the film. So they relied on that vibration in the room actually being really huge. And then uh, sound came in and it didn't sound so great for a long time. Uh, you know, there weren't THX systems or anything like that. So it's a real treat. Anytime you can see it, it's an amazing thing. Oh, I love that. Well, Cliff Vitalik, thank you for taking a second to talk to us about silent era accompaniment. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Cliff for being here. And if you manage in the quick window between when this episode comes out to get tickets for January 18th, you can see Cliff play with the Gold Rush. If you're listening to this and you think, I really want to see the Gold Rush big with music, hurry up in Los Angeles so you can actually make that happen. And if you go, have fun. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can, or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinus. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm gonna miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Ruba, go do it. That's right, Ruba, they should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Bruba go do. Yes, Bruba go do. Bruba go do. That's right, Bruba go do. Okay, so we've talked about so much that is beautiful in this movie. Now can we talk about a little bit of the ugliness? Absolutely. Let's hear it. All right, let's talk about how this movie was meant to be cast. Okay. Because this was a really long process, and when Chaplin first started to make the movie, he had an idea of who he wanted to star as the girl. He wanted to star this actress named Lita Gray, who he had met four years ago when she was 11 years old and did a cameo in his movie called Yes, I read about this. Okay, yeah. Yeah. She came in. She was this beautiful little 11-year-old. He was like, she's great. Four years later, he's like, she should be my love interest in this film. So he convinces her mother. He brings her to the Donner Party Pass, where they're shooting these first opening scenes of the movie. He seduces her. Mm-hmm. He gets her pregnant. So that Fifteen-year-old girl. Yeah. So that by the time he's actually ready to keep shooting the movie, she's too pregnant to be the star. A few other, th- other things happen in this period that I think are really interesting and kind of mm-hmm. combine, which is that, of course, Chaplin was having a lot of sex with a lot of people. He would... What Lita Gray said about him was she called him a human sex machine who could have wow. sex like six times a day. But he was also really freaked out about venereal disease. Imagine the uh, tramp putting on a condom. <laughs> I mean, he probably should have. But uh, instead of doing that, he heard that if you paint your penis with iodine, you yeah. can protect yourself from venereal disease. That's true. Yeah, so picture him with a little a little paintbrush. <laughs> I mean, the story we he, we know of the story from one of the other people he was also having an affair with at the okay. time, who is Marion Davies. Right, Marion Davies. We've talked about her on our very first episode. Yes. she's the girl that was loosely, 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 loosely inspired. Um, the uh, Citizen Kane as William Randolph Hearst's lover of forever. But he married this fifteen-year-old too, just just. Right. Oh, he did. We're going to get to that. Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Uh, So she's the one who told the story about seeing Charlie kind of burst out of the bathroom with a giant bright red erect penis covered in iodine. Wow. Yeah. He also took seven showers a day because he was so freaked out about boning germs, sex, boning germs. Anyway, so um, Chaplin is dating Marion Davies. He's dating um, Lita Gray. Right. Uh, He's dating Louise Brooks at one point during Mm -hmm. the making of this. And... Something happens after Lita Gray. Is that why he had so many houses around Hollywood? So he can basically like he was basically living like that uh, like that TLC show <laughs> like about the polygamists, like just had a different house for a different affair. Maybe although Marion Davies was so rich, her house was probably was bigger than his, which oh, is wow. saying something. Um, anyway, so have you heard about the murder of Thomas Ince? No. 
Okay. Here's what happens while Charlie Chaplin is making the gold rush. Mm -hmm. He goes on this boat trip. And on this boat trip is Marion Davies, who he's having an affair with. Okay. William Randolph Hearst, her lover, or her longtime this is, married lover. This is, yeah. And this director named Thomas Ince. And also uh, Gossip Communist. I think, it, I forget if it was Luella Parsons. This is like the Robert Wagner thing all yeah. over again. All right, yeah, yeah go it ahead. It is, it is. And Thomas Ince winds up dead on this boat. Whoa. And the working theory is that William Randolph Hearst figured out that Chaplin was having an affair with his girlfriend, tried to shoot Chaplin, but accidentally shot Thomas Ince. Wow. Yeah. And this was a scandal. I mean, it was such a scandal. We even had a movie about it made fairly recently, The Cat's Meow, directed by our own Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, we, wow. Yeah, we can listen to a little bit of that. Julius Weekend Cruise. He's heard about us. That would end in murder. Nothing can happen this weekend. So what are you doing next weekend? There have been whispers, Mary. There's nothing going on between me and Charlie. Have you slept with him? No. Have you? There are some things even you can't control. Like what? Don't worry. Your secret is safe with me. You just said everyone knows. Who's everyone? Well, everyone on this boat, for example. Thank you, Tom. I'll handle this matter. Well, it seems like a real jaunty, uh, <laughs> jaunty fun movie about murder. It's real jaunty. So a funny thing happens a week after this in shooting, which is Chaplin proposes to Lita Gray. And oh, the timing of wow. that I find really suspicious. Yes. So it's like, oh, hell is about to break loose. I'm getting married. And so he decides, So he gets betrothed to this 15-year-old. He also has to do it because she's 15. And right. he could have been put in prison for 30 years. And he's 35. Years. Yeah. He could go to prison for 30 years at the height of his career wow. if he was accused of So if you marry him, it, it's not molestation if you marry him. It's good to know, Marianne. Right then Amy says what? not molestation <laughs> if you marry them. Okay, got it. Yep. <gasps> Wow, cool. Uh, but their marriage is really terrible right from the start. I mean, Lita Gray has talked about it pretty openly. Right. Uh, if you want to hear her voice, this is Lita Gray when she's older talking about being married to Chaplin. He was a very sensuous man. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I could get into any detail on that, really. That would be indelicate. <laughs> uh, he was very taken with me. He had his cameraman photograph me in the position of the famous painting, The Age of Innocence. He thought that I resembled that little girl in the oil painting. So it's, any, it's, uh, it's anybody's question as to whether he was taken with me really when I was younger even than 16 because he was a genius and geniuses do and think odd things as compared to other people. So we'll never know. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and so she actually does get fairly open about their relationship in some of her memoirs. And she says that, you know, they took a train to go get married uh, in another state. And when they were on their way back from the train, on the train she was like, can you get me a glass of water? And he said, aren't you afraid I might try to poison you? And that later on, wow. they took a walk around the train and they went to the back of the platform. He said, why don't you jump? So Whoa. their marriage did not start off well. And it's, it also starts with her right. getting cut out of this film and replaced with Georgia Hale, who he also begins having an affair with. Wow. And their relationship seems kind of sweet in a weird way. She says that on one of their first dates, he took her to the boardwalk and he was playing carnival games right. and he won her a prize. And because people were a little hungry back then, she had a choice of prizes that included stuffed animals and cans of corn and beans. And she picked the cans of corn and beans. And when she did that, he knew that they were 
Kindred Souls. Oh wow! And you know what? And and uh, and she didn't really get cut out of the movie. She is an uncredited extra in the Chimuk uh, pass scene. So if you look really closely, really there, close. she probably got seven dollars fifty cents and got to hang out with some great people that day. Yeah. Uh, so he treats everybody pretty good. Absolutely. I mean, Georgia Hill also wrote memoirs about Chaplin, and she refers to him as two different people. That's how she had to reconcile with his behavior. That there was the man that she fell in love with, and she called him Charlie. Right. And then the man who was a horrible fucking person, she called him Mr. Chaplin. He didn't renew her contract when the time came up to make the next movie because he was worried that Lita Gray knew that he had been sleeping with her. So he made her a star, but then he cut her off really fast. Got it. You know, he made it. Then he cuts her out of the film when he redoes it in 1942. He makes her part as small as he possibly can. Mm. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. But. Yeah. But by the way, you know, um, he wanted Carol Lombard. To be that part, too. I was interested, like, why Carol Lombard didn't do that. I couldn't find any reason why. But, I mean, maybe it was somebody that was talked about at that point. Yeah. But it and seems actually, like, to me, he could have gotten whoever he wanted. It wasn't like the studio had to say yes. Like, he could have gotten it. So she must have said no. Well, yeah. And remember when we were doing um, City Lights and we talked about him maybe wanting to cut Virginia Harrell out of the Yeah. The person he threatened to replace her with was Georgia Hale. So he kind of used oh, all of wow. his women like, against each other. Although, I will say, uh, the person who wound up getting a bit of revenge is Lita because when she winds up divorcing Chaplin, she gets a ton of money in the settlement. And part of the theory as to why she got so much money is because she said if he didn't settle for her and give her as much money as she wanted, she would announce the six women that she knew for sure he had been having an affair with at the time. One of those women would have been Marion Davies. And so he was like, we cannot have that get out right now. I love that he was a sex machine. I mean, that, that really just seems like he was fueled by like, Sex and control, and really, I mean, we're going back to Strange Love. It's like you know, it's like <laughs> sex and power. Like that's all he wants. Oh, you know? I'm picturing Chaplin inside the giant gears in modern times, and it says Chaplin is a sex machine. Uh, there we go. That's our shirt. Oh, <laughs> just just a silhouette of Chaplin and those things. Sex machine. I mean, I should let By way, maybe that, that's his a great daughter get the last word uh, on on Chaplin as a person because. You know, it's, it is very specific in here that he makes the choice of the dinner party to happen on New Year's and not Christmas, even though there's a bit of blurring yes. because he's giving people Christmas presents. She said that Chaplin hated Christmas. Christmas was his least favorite holiday oh, because wow. it reminded him of being a poor kid, of a person who never had any money, never had any gifts. And so the great irony of this, according to Chaplin's daughter, Geraldine, is that he died on Christmas Day. And she said her theory of it is he died on Christmas Day so he would ruin it for all of his children, too. Wow. <laughs> I think actually what's sweet about it being on New Year's is you get a couple of moments I think are incredibly touching. Like when he takes the time as the people in the village are singing Odd Lang Syne to I, cut around the faces of the different people who have had a hard time. We see a minor with one leg. We see the women who yes, have been in this area this, that way sequence, too long. Well, that, again, going back to this idea of like this um, – being a great director, the, this sequence has so many beautiful shots. I mean, the cutting back and forth between both scenes, the faces, that leads into uh, another scene, I think, when he enters into the dance hall at one point where he's silhouetted and you see the dance. There's so much beautiful directing and shot composition here, but that that sequence in particular is really, really beautiful. Yeah, the emotions in there, that awareness of the passage of time, yeah. that sense of regret, I think that's incredibly moving. And I was actually thinking... Of a different cartoon that I think might have stolen a little bit of this. Okay. But this, this sound wasn't sad. What? This sound sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the 
tall and the small was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. You know, it's interesting. I feel like Charlie Chaplin's more of the Grinch than uh, than the Tramp. Well, I think there's something that connects them, which is the idea of loneliness and pathos. Yeah. Of having a lead character that you really feel awful for. Because right. you do feel awful for the Grinch, even when yes. he's mean. I, I don't know. Something in that setup, it felt deliberate to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I... I, I I buy it. I, I look. I think we're so influenced. I mean, how could you not be influenced by this movie? Um, you know what movie that this reminds me of uh, that we just watched this clip of? Did you see the? Um, did you see that Benedict Cumberbatch uh, movie? It was uh, Pharrell was the narrator to it. Is that? It was. Oh, the Grinch's Little Christmas. Did you see that? That that movie reminded me of what we just watched. What? Wow. Uh, Are you uh, making this up? No. Benedict Cumberbatch starred in The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. It was made by Illumination Studios, the people behind the Minions. Uh, and I've conservatively seen it about 35 times. Uh, Pharrell is the narrator. And, by the way, Tyler, the creator, does some of the songs, and they're great. It's good. It's a, it's a good movie. Have you watched this 30 times just on your own? Amy, my Christmas break was spent literally, I would say... No fewer, oh gosh, I'm really going to think about this. No fewer than about 48 times watching Home Alone 1. Home Alone 2, 15, 16 times. Lego Movie, it still doesn't stop. Lego Movie, I'm like, Lego Movie, I know it so much because it plays in my car. I, I know the line, I know every line of the Lego Movie. Hold on to your butt. Like I can tell, I can tell you, I know where it's going. I know it in my my bones. So much so, uh, the Home Alone thing that we actually did a one, well, not a one man show, but my kid, we did a, a full Home Alone show that June directed and helped my son write. My son is five. You met him the other day. He was shy. He uh, he did a whole. <laughs> Home Alone show that we then toured around for the holiday season. Whenever we get in a big enough group of people around, <laughs> we would do a a ten minute Home Alone mini uh, a mini Home Alone uh, stage show. Did you play the burglar? I did. I did played you... the burglar. I played the dad. Whoa! Did I you, did you get abused? Um, I I trip and fall. We compacted the movie, you know. <laughs> so I, I I we basically trip and fall, and the cops come. <laughs> You know, what I was thinking is I watched the silent version. I watched the original 25, and then I watched the original 42. And for me, it confirmed the power of silent filmmaking. Mm. Because we were talking about this a bit when we were talking about Keaton versus Chaplin. They were having these competitions to see who could cut the most words out of their title cards, who could use the fewest amount of title cards. And even when I was watching The Gold Rush the first time, I was thinking, you could cut a lot of these title cards out. You don't need half of the title cards that the movie already has. You don't need Chaplin to walk into the dance hall and then be like, he was a stranger. Because we get that from the way that he acts. But I think some of those are done for comedic effect, too. Like where there's one title card was like, a lone cabin. A lone man. Like I feel like, like I feel like they're they are jokes. Like they're like, oh, let me use these title cards to just get another laugh out of you. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I mean, but yes, I'm that one not particularly. But I, I feel like he's doing interesting stuff there too. That's fair. But as extraneous as some of those cards felt, I thought 
The narration he added felt even more so. I mean, listen to this here. What's the matter with you, said the little fellow. Come, my pretty bird, said Big Jim. Don't be childish. I mean, I don't yeah. need Big Jim to call him a pretty bird. He's a bird. He's a pretty bird. He's a very pretty bird. Also, I mean, very pretty bird. Uh, and that's, uh, I would say, also I don't like the music in it. The music feels a little bit more like aggressive, whereas the music in the 1925 version is so, um, obviously puts me to sleep, but it, uh, but it, it it's, uh, there's something a little less abrasive about it. Like that just feels like, bah, bah. like it feels yeah. a little more. Uh, we are funny. This yeah. is a funny scene. Yeah, yeah, it feels like it's kind of trying to do too much work, too much heavy lifting. The other narration that popped out is this one. And there was Georgia caressing him with her smiles and tender glances. And the girls called for a speech. But he was too happy to speak. All that mattered was Georgia was there. Georgia. So he muttered and stuttered and finally said, I can't make a speech, but I'll do a dance. And a dance he did with the rolls. I mean... I don't know why he has to say, I'm going to do a dance with the roles. I also think it's funny that even in the original silent film, they're like, let's have a moment where they ask him for a speech. The one thing that we know will not happen in right, the silent right, right. film. But here, he does the dance with the roles after having to announce that he does the dance with the roles, which I'm like, yeah, maybe sound is super redundant. Yeah. It can be. Well, I think, the, I think the retrofit a silent film just feels bizarre to me. If it, or the way, is that Chaplin's voice? Yeah, that is Chaplin's voice. It feels very news, like uh, news, really. Like it feels very much like there's no, you know, come here, there, little boy. I tell you this right now. Like it doesn't feel like there's any acting to it, which is so interesting because he seems to emote so much, but that there's no difference in anything that we've heard. It just feels yeah, like, Georgia. yeah, it feels like almost like. Um, I mean, I do more when I read my kids their books at bed. Like you, you get like. like there should be a little bit more there, you yeah. know, like, yeah. We should talk about the dance of the rules. We've been threatening this yes. forever. So I want to play, and I, I apologize to people at home. I want to play this for Paul. I okay. want to play a little bit of Johnny Depp doing the dance of the rules, which yeah. I think is very inferior. And I'm curious if you will agree with me. Well, I work with Johnny. Reason. I don't want to malign him, you know. Oh, well, I can malign him. Okay, so now can we watch the other dancing of the roles? I just want to put them back to back. All right, so Amy, based on watching Johnny Depp in that performance, because that was my first exposure to the dancing roles, mm -hmm. Benny and June. Also to the Proclaimers. Great song. Anyway, uh, I will say this. Johnny Depp performs the roles as if he is Charlie Chaplin being asked to perform the roles like at like a wedding. Like, hey, do the roles, do the roles. He's like, no, no, no. And then it's like an hour later. Like, do the roles, do the roles. He's like, roles. Here's the roles. Here's the roles. Roles, roles, roles. Like, there's no, like, it seems put upon and then back to uh chaplin you know with the artful way that he paints his penis with iodine just <laughs> taking every moment uh with the uh with the the feet like it's a it's a it's a legitimate routine it feels like it's beautifully done 
I a thousand percent agree. When I watched the Johnny Depp one, I thought, oh, he's doing the wrong silent actor's face. Yes. He's doing a Buster Keaton face. You know, Buster Keaton's right. old stone face never reacted to anything that was happening. He's doing a Buster Keaton stone face. Whereas Chaplin, even though Chaplin doesn't smile when he does the dance of the roles, you can see in the way he carries himself, his posture, that he's showing off a bit. Yes. That he's aware is- he's performing. Whereas Johnny Depp is just dead from the neck up. I pulled actually a couple more clips of the role thing being resurrected. One yes. of them is in a situation almost exactly like what you were talking about. This is from the Robert Downey Jr. Chaplin movie. Oh, it by the way, I was going to ask you, how is that movie? You know, I've never seen it in full, oh, wow. okay. to be honest. No, I'm kind of curious about it because now that we've learned so much about him and then all these films, I'm kind of curious how he did it. We should watch it. I'd actually really love to watch that Yeah, movie. that'd be really interesting. Yeah, but this is him doing it. And in this movie... He does the dance of the roles when he's at a dinner party where everyone around him, he thinks, is being awful and tedious. Motion pictures are potentially the most influential form of communication ever invented. And there's no control over them. Your message reaches everyone, everywhere. Message? Of course. Mr. Chaplin here reaches millions who only have to see. And when they see a mockery being made of our immigration services, I call that a message. Yes. Well, as you've already said, Mr. Hoover, motion pictures are for the people. Most of the people work for a living and they don't make much money doing it. It gives them pleasure to see officialdom and the upper classes getting a kick up the backside. Always has, and it always will. And if that can change things, so much the better. I'm mixed on this. I mean, he does the kick up the backside with the role. The role's like, Ta-da! I know, but I kind of feel like this is what you're talking about with the, the prequel thing. It's like, and that's how he came up with the dancing roles. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure this movie is well researched, but I'm like, <sighs> uh, maybe we should watch the full movie because I feel like just from that glimpse, though, I can see that Robert Denny Jr. gets Chaplin's bad attitude. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I think... And in that, I like his bad attitude in that scene. The kind of guy yes. who's going to tell a movie boss, who's going to tell the president of America that he's wrong about what movies can do and he's like, I'm going to make movies about the poor. I, I believe that, like, I mean, everyone says that uh, RDJ's performance in this is uh, top-notch. Uh, which, I mean, I think he was nominated for an Oscar. Like, it was like... But I just feel like that, like... And his career only went up from... Oh, oh, hey. So here's something interesting. Fatty Arbuckle did a dancing role thing in 1917. So is there a chance that Chaplin stole the dancing roles? I mean, they definitely knew each other really well. I mean, mean, when he would have done this in 25, to use a phrase again that should be canceled, Fatty Arbuckle had definitely been canceled. Right. You wonder, that's almost ballsy of Chaplin to be like, this guy was canceled for, you know, I mean, he was acquitted, uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. There's a right. big history of the Fatty Arbuckle thing that's more complicated than we can get into. But, like, here's a guy who had his career ruined because of an accused sex crime. I'm a real creep. Why don't I just do the same routine and really draw out the parallel? Well, let's. Let, let, I'm going to show you uh, Fatty Arbuckle's uh, dancing roles. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, Fatty Arbuckle's very good with his roles. Yeah. So, I mean, Interesting. Yeah, okay, well, all right. Scandal? Scandal. Who came up with the roles first, Amy? (laughs) Here's the person I think did the roles last. Okay. Okay. 
Um, Thank I've, you, I, Amy I, Adams. I, Amy Adams, always great. And I think she did a great job of those uh, dancing roles. I think she did, too. And I think what's the beautiful symmetry is of that is that so much of what I learned about pop culture, I learned through the Muppets, you know, watching yeah. runs when I was a kid. And I like that Amy Adams, for a new generation of kids, is stealth implanting them with the idea of Charlie Chaplin right now with some dancing roles. I love it all. So, Amy, we both agree. This movie is really, really good. Uh, It could be Chaplin's best. Uh, A movie that he thinks is his best. What do the reviewers think? They liked it a lot. I couldn't find a bad review, to be honest. The most I found was a reference to a bad review that I could not find anywhere on the internet because the papers are gone. But um, I'm reading it because I think it's interesting. And I'll just say the little excerpts I have first, and then I'll say why I think it's interesting. Um, It's a critic named Dorothy Herzog. She wrote for the New York Daily Mirror. And what we know that she said for sure is that she called the gold rush, quote, not the star's best offering. She said that the plot, quote, tried to cover too much territory. And then she said that, quote, generous cutting would benefit the whole greatly. Wow. And a few things I find interesting here are, he does generously cut it later on. I right. don't know if he's listening, but that the paper that Dorothy Herzog wrote for, the New York Daily Mirror, was actually a paper owned by William Randolph Hearst. So I wonder wow. if there was a little bit there, some behind the scenes machinations of Hearst being like, I don't like that dude. I'm going to have my critic write something somewhat middling. I mean, that even actually happens yeah. in, in Citizen Kane. Remember, you have that scene where William Randolph Hertz writes the negative review in his own paper of Marion Davies' Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if there was any kind of finagling there or if Dorothy Herzog really meant what she said. Also, I might never get to mention this again, but over the Christmas break, I read Marion Davies' autobiography, and my God, she is a goddamn piece of work. <laughs> she is, she is, she talks about, like, the buildup to World War II and the Japanese internment camps as though the interned Japanese are just nuisances. She's worried they're going to break into their mansion. Oh, So, man. yeah. And she says her one big regret was that she never met Hitler. Not so much because wow. she was a Nazi. Okay. But because she just thought it'd be funny. Her whole life was parties and meeting people. And she's like, oh, I tried so hard to meet Hitler and it never worked out. Oh, my God. What a bummer. So hard to meet Hitler. My yeah. God. Speaking of, I mean, well, yeah. I guess would you ever want to meet Hitler? I mean, that's a question. Like, I mean, if if it, if if you had a if you had a moment, do you want to? Like, <laughs> would you cross the party to go over and say hi? How could you meet Hitler? Like, what if he was nice to you for thirty seconds and then it tainted your opinion of everything you did? Like, oh, he was nice to me. Fuck that. Oh, I bought some of his paintings, but I didn't support his uh, politics. Um, wow. I mean, Hitler did ban the gold rush in the thirties. The, the Third Reich did because they thought that Chaplin and his mustache were making fun of Hitler, which to me I think is well fair and ironic because I believe that Hitler grew his mustache to look like Chaplin. So it's a whole cycle. Well, but I mean, but look, but this is also you know. They they also thought, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? Because long before ridiculing Hitler and the great dictator, Chaplin was an enemy of this of the Nazis. They thought he was Jewish. He wasn't. His half-brother, Sidney, was. Um, and the gold rush was banned by the Third Reich. And his portraits were featured in this publication along with Einstein and uh, Reinhardt and Mann. Uh, and they were, you know, crudely retouched, you know, to emphasize uh, the Hebraic features. And under Chaplin's image, uh, they dismissed him as a little Jewish acrobat, as disgusting as he is tedious. And to Chaplin's credit, he made it a rule for himself never to contradict any statement that he was uh, Jewish because he said anyone who denies this in respect of himself plays into the hands of the anti-Semites. 
I respect that. Yeah, I, that, 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 that I think that's like a really interesting thing. Maybe um, that's what Marion Davies would have said to Hitler. She was such a bubblehead. She would have been like, "He's not Jewish, he's not by Jewish. the way. It's Get him out of your magazines." Um, <laughs> all right, so this movie is fifty-eight. It falls in the middle, right? Uh, City Lights is number eleven, um, and Modern Times is seventy-eight. Uh, there's three chaplains on the list. Um, we've already seen City Lights. We haven't seen Modern Times, but already. My big, bold proclamation is I think there should be switched. So I think the 58 and 11 should be switched. You know, when we watched City Lights, I was like, this is perfection. Yeah. What is better than this film? This film is magical. And the gold rush is just as good, if not better, to be honest. Yeah. And I mean, I'm curious about what it'll be like when I see Modern Times, because that's when I've seen the most. That's when I feel like they always play in film school. Right. There's been some moving around on the list. I feel like- This one went up. This, Yeah. This one went up. City Lights went way up. I think right. in the 97 list, City Lights wasn't that high either. And it oh, wow. skyrocketed. I wonder how this is going to play out when we see Modern Times, how we'll finally really rank the three chaplains. And if we'll decide yeah. we want all three chaplains. I don't know. If, again, I'm, I'm getting more and more in this idea of like paring down and making room for other things as well. Um, but I, I, uh, I think as a film, and again, from a comedic standpoint, uh, I just give this movie a little bit more of a push ahead. But I, I'm open to uh, watching Modern Times and seeing how I feel about the whole thing. I mean, because City Lights is an amazing film, too. It's it's amazing. They're all amazing. Well, in the George Lucasness of the whole thing, yeah. you know, we were asked when we started to do, when we announced this episode, are we going to do the 25 or the 42 version? Right. It is technically the 25 on the list, but that is a thing that wasn't even possible until fairly recently because right. Chaplin had most of the prints of 25 destroyed and preferred the 42. Where do you stack up on this? You want oh. 25 or 42? Oh, 25, 100%. If it was 42, I wouldn't put it on the list. Yeah, agreed. Right? Yeah. It just seems like, I mean, because uh, it just feels like that's not what this movie is. I think that the changes in in this film are more egregious than the changes in Star Wars. Star Wars, it's like you are, you're blowing up the Death Star, you're making it look a little bit better, you're adding in some more creatures. But like, I feel like he's almost slightly changing the intent of Gold Rush by making it not a talkie, but by narrating it. Like the artistry of it is kind of diluted. Like, and I understand you can make the same argument for Star Wars, but not on a, you're not losing the performances. You know, you're maybe adding one subpar scene. You're changing a little thing, but this, I feel like it's changing the, the clips that we just watched. Like I'm not watching it the same way. I mean, it does feel like almost a mistake that, Rise of Skywalker made, which is trying too much in 42 to pacify an audience that it doesn't trust will love it anymore. Mm. Whereas, though, I will say changing it so that Han doesn't shoot first is one of the biggest character portrayals. Oh, absolutely. In that entire franchise. Well, now we got McClunky, so it's all working out. It's all fine. It's all Um, good. Do you have a question for me about... Another cartoon parallel? Nope, none. See you later, Amy. <laughs> See you next week. Um, my question is, why aren't we on The Simpsons already? I mean, we've been doing this show for far too long. We are ready for our cameo on The Simpsons, goddammit. Uh, all right. Amy, is there a Simpsons clip? <clears throat> I do have one from an episode called Lady Bouvier's Lover. This is Grandpa Simpson trying to rewin back one of the great crushes of his life with a chaplain routine involving dinner rolls at a salad buffet restaurant. We know this routine pretty well. Talk to someone on the phone. Oh, feeling blue, eh? I got something that'll cheer you up. (laughs) 
Sir, I represent the estate of Charles Chaplin. I have a court order demanding an immediate halt to this unauthorized imitation. Boys? All right, so next week, Amy, we are going to be talking about the Sam Peckinpah film, The Wild Bunch. Um, There's only one Peckinpah on the list, and this is it. And it's a movie that I've never seen before, but it feels like, just like everything in Hollywood, it is time for a reboot. It's time for a reimagining. Who would be good (laughs) in a film about a bunch of aging cowboys uh, that are out for one last job? I mean, who would be your prime cast? Uh, I want you to think about that. I'll think about it myself. Think about it. And I'm not trying to influence you, but Mel Gibson has said he wants to do a remake of this, as has Will Smith. So there's a range wow. of people you could imagine in this film. All right. So well, imagine maybe, that. Maybe we should do uh, who is the leader of the gang and who is hunting him down, because that's uh, that's the one thing that we know, that the leader of the Wild Bunch is being hunted down by his former partner. So give me the person who's on the side of the law and the person who is on the side of the disorder, I guess. I don't know. Uh, if you want to throw in your Borg 9, I'll take it. Oh, yeah. who We need the Borg 9. Uh, the number is 747-666-5824. 747-666-5824. Next week, The Wild Bunch, available wherever movies are gotten. 